Chapter Nineteen, Part Six of Supplements to the Second Book from the World as Will and Idea, Volume Two, by Arthur Schopenhauer, translated by R. B. Haldane and J. Kemp. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Chapter Nineteen, On the Primacy of the Will in Self-Consciousness, Part Six a true feeling of the real relation between will intellect and life is also expressed in the latin language the intellect is mens nous the will again is animus which comes from anima and this from animon anima is the life itself the breath psuche but animus is the living principle and also the will the subject of inclinations intentions passions emotions hence also es mihi animus fert animus for i have a desire to also animi causa etc it is the greek thumos the german gemut thus the heart but not the head animi perturbatio is an emotion mentis perturbatio would signify insanity the predicate immortalis is attributed to animus not to mens all this is the rule gathered from the great majority of passages though in the case of conceptions so nearly related it cannot but be that the words are sometimes interchanged under psuche the greeks appear primarily and originally to have understood the vital force the living principle whereby at once arose the dim sense that it must be something metaphysical which consequently would not be reached by death among other proofs of this are the investigations of the relation between nous and psuche preserved by stobaeus ten upon what depends the identity of the person not upon the matter of the body it is different after a few years not upon its form which changes as a whole and in all its parts all but the expression of the glance by which therefore we still know a man even after many years which proves that in spite of all the changes time produces in him something in him remains quite untouched by it it is just this by which we recognize him even after the longest intervals of time and find the former man entire it is the same with ourselves for however old we become we yet feel within that we are entirely the same as we were when we were young nay when we were still children this which unaltered always remains quite the same and does not grow old along with us is really the kernel of our nature which does not lie in time it is assumed that the identity of the person rests upon that of consciousness but by this is understood merely the connected recollection of the course of life hence it is not sufficient we certainly know something more of our life than of a novel we have formerly read yet only very little the principal events the interesting scenes have impressed themselves upon us in the remainder a thousand events are forgotten for one that has been retained the older we become the more do things pass us by without leaving any trace great age illness injury of the brain madness may deprive us of memory altogether but the identity of the person is not thereby lost it rests upon the identical will in the unalterable character of the person it is it also which makes the expression of the glance unchangeable in the heart is the man not in the head it is true that in consequence of our relation to the external world we are accustomed to regard as our real self the subject of knowledge 
the knowing i which wearies in the evening vanishes in sleep and in the morning shines brighter with renewed strength this is however the mere function of the brain and not our own self our true self the kernel of our nature is what is behind that and really knows nothing but willing and not willing being content and not content with all the modifications of this which are called feelings emotions and passions this is that which produces the other does not sleep with it when it sleeps and in the same way when it sinks in death remains uninjured everything on the contrary that belongs to knowledge is exposed to oblivion even actions of moral significance can sometimes after years be only imperfectly recalled and we no longer know accurately and in detail how we acted on a critical occasion but the character itself to which the actions only testify cannot be forgotten by us it is now still quite the same as then the will itself alone and for itself is permanent for it alone is unchangeable indestructible not growing old not physical but metaphysical not belonging to the phenomenal appearance but to that itself which so appears how the identity of consciousness also so far as it goes depends upon it i have shown above in chapter fifteen so i need not dwell upon it further here eleven aristotle says in passing in his book on the comparison of the desirable to live well is better than to live beltian to zintouzin from this we might infer by double contraposition not to live is better than to live badly this is also evident to the intellect yet the great majority live very badly rather than not at all this clinging to life cannot therefore have its ground in the object of life since life as was shown in the fourth book is really a constant suffering or at the least as will be shown further on in the twenty-eighth chapter a business which does not cover its expenses thus that clinging to life can only be founded in the subject of it but it is not founded in the intellect it is no result of reflection and in general is not a matter of choice but this willing of life is something that is taken for granted it is a prius of the intellect itself we ourselves are the will to live and therefore we must live well or ill only from the fact that this clinging to a life which is so little worth to them is entirely a priori and not a posteriori can we explain the excessive fear of death that dwells in every living thing which rochefoucauld has expressed in his last reflection with rare frankness and naivete and upon which the effect of all tragedies and heroic actions ultimately rests for it would be lost if we prize life only according to its objective worth upon this inexpressible horror mortis is also founded the favourite principle of all ordinary minds that whosoever takes his own life must be mad yet not less the astonishment mingled with a certain admiration which this action always excites even in thinking minds because it is so opposed to the nature of all living beings that in a certain sense we are forced to admire him who is able to perform it for suicide proceeds from a purpose of the intellect but our will to live is a prius of the intellect thus this consideration also which will be fully discussed in chapter twenty eight confirms the primacy of the will in self-consciousness twelve on the other hand nothing proves more clearly the secondary dependent conditioned nature of the intellect than its periodical intermittence in deep sleep all knowing and forming of ideas ceases 
but the kernel of our nature the metaphysical part of it which the organic functions necessarily presuppose as their primum mobile must never pause if life is not to cease and moreover as something metaphysical and therefore incorporeal it requires no rest therefore the philosophers who set up a soul as this metaphysical kernel that is an originally and essentially knowing being see themselves forced to the assertion that this soul is quite untiring in its perceiving and knowing therefore continues these even in deep sleep only that we have no recollection of this when we awake the falseness of this assertion however was easy to see whenever one had rejected that soul in consequence of kant's teaching for sleep and waking prove to the unprejudiced mind in the clearest manner that knowing is a secondary function and conditioned by the organism just like any other only the heart is untiring because its beating and the circulation of the blood are not directly conditioned by nerves but are just the original manifestation of the will also all other physiological functions governed merely by ganglionic nerves which have only a very indirect and distant connection with the brain are carried on during sleep although the secretions take place more slowly the beating of the heart itself on account of its dependence upon respiration which is conditioned by the cerebral system medulla oblongata becomes with it a little slower the stomach is perhaps most active in sleep which is to be attributed to its special consensus with the now resting brain which occasions mutual disturbances the brain alone and with it knowing pauses entirely in deep sleep for it is merely the minister of foreign affairs as the ganglion system is the minister of the interior the brain with its function of knowing is only a vedette established by the will for its external ends which up in the watch-tower of the head looks round through the windows of the senses and marks where mischief threatens and where advantages are to be looked for and in accordance with whose report the will decides this vedette like every one engaged on active service is then in a condition of strain and effort and therefore it is glad when after its watch is completed it is again withdrawn as every watch gladly retires from its post this withdrawal is going to sleep which is therefore so sweet and agreeable and to which we are so glad to yield on the other hand being roused from sleep is unwelcome because it recalls the vedette suddenly to its post one generally feels also after the beneficent systole the reappearance of the difficult diastole the re-separation of the intellect from the will a so-called soul which was originally and radically a knowing being would on the contrary necessarily feel on awaking like a fish put back into water in sleep when merely the vegetative life is carried on the will works only according to its original and essential nature undisturbed from without with no diminution of its power through the activity of the brain and the exertion of knowing which is the heaviest organic function yet for the organism merely a means not an end therefore in sleep the whole power of the will is directed to the maintenance and where it is necessary the improvement of the organism hence all healing all favourable crises take place in sleep for the vis naturae medicatrix has free play only when it is delivered from the burden of the function of knowledge the embryo which has still to form the body therefore sleeps continuously and the newborn child the greater part of its time in this sense burdach 
physiologie volume three page four eighty four quite rightly declares sleep to be the original state with reference to the brain itself i account to myself for the necessity of sleep more fully through an hypothesis which appears to have been first set up in neumann's book von den krankenheiten des menschen eighteen thirty four volume four section two sixteen it is this that the nutrition of the brain thus the renewal of its substance from the blood cannot go on while we are awake because the very eminent organic function of knowing and thinking would be disturbed or put an end to by the low and material function of nutrition this explains the fact that sleep is not a purely negative condition a mere pausing of the activity of the brain but also shows a positive character this makes itself known through the circumstance that between sleep and waking there is no mere difference of degree but a fixed boundary which as soon as sleep intervenes declares itself in dreams which are completely different from our immediately preceding thoughts a further proof of this is that when we have dreams which frighten us we try in vain to cry out or to ward off attacks or to shake off sleep so that it is as if the connecting link between the brain and the motor nerves or between the cerebrum and the cerebellum as the regulator of movements were abolished for the brain remains in its isolation and sleep holds us fast as with brazen claws finally the positive character of sleep can be seen in the fact that a certain degree of strength is required for sleeping therefore too great fatigue or natural weakness prevent us from seizing it capere somnum this may be explained from the fact that the process of nutrition must be introduced if sleep is to ensue the brain must as it were begin to feed moreover the increased flow of blood into the brain during sleep is explicable from the nutritive process and also the position of the arms laid together above the head which is instinctively assumed because it furthers this process also why children so long as their brain is still growing require a great deal of sleep while in old age on the other hand when a certain atrophy of the brain as of all the parts takes place sleep is short and finally why excessive sleep produces a certain dullness of consciousness the consequence of a certain hypertrophy of the brain which in the case of habitual excess of sleep may become permanent and produce imbecility aninkai palus upnas that is noxai est etiam multus somnus the need of sleep is therefore directly proportionate to the intensity of the brain life thus to the clearness of the consciousness those animals whose brain life is weak and dull sleep little and lightly for example reptiles and fishes and here i must remind the reader that the winter sleep is sleep almost only in name for it is not an inaction of the brain alone but of the whole organism thus a kind of apparent death animals of considerable intelligence sleep deeply and long men also require more sleep the more developed both as regards quantity and quality and the more active their brain is montaigne relates of himself that he had always been a long sleeper that he had passed a large part of his life in sleeping and at an advanced age still slept from eight to nine hours at a time descartes also is reported to have slept a great deal kant allowed himself seven hours for sleep but it was so hard for him to do with this that he ordered his servant to force him against his will and without listening to his remonstrances to get up at the set time 
jachmann immanuel kant page one sixty two for the more completely awake a man is that is the clearer and more lively his consciousness the greater for him is the necessity of sleep thus the deeper and longer he sleeps accordingly much thinking or hard brain work increases the need of sleep that sustained muscular exertion also makes us sleepy is to be explained from the fact that in this the brain continuously by means of the medulla oblongata the spinal marrow and the motor nerves imparts the stimulus to the muscles which affects their irritability and in this way it exhausts its strength the fatigue which we observe in the arms and legs has accordingly its real seat in the brain just as the pain which these parts feel is really experienced in the brain for it is connected with the motor nerves as with the nerves of sense the muscles which are not actuated from the brain for example those of the heart accordingly never tire the same grounds explain the fact that both during and after great muscular exertion we cannot think acutely that one has far less energy of mind in summer than in winter is partly explicable from the fact that in summer one sleeps less for the deeper one has slept the more completely awake the more lively is one afterwards this however must not mislead us into extending sleep unduly for then it loses in intention that is in deepness and soundness what it gains in extension whereby it becomes mere loss of time this is what goethe means when he says in the second part of faust of morning slumber sleep is husk throw it off thus in general the phenomenon of sleep most specially confirms the assertion that consciousness apprehension knowing thinking is nothing original in us but a conditioned and secondary state it is a luxury of nature and indeed its highest which can therefore the less afford to pursue without interruption the higher the pitch to which it has been brought it is the product the efflorescence of the cerebral nerve system which is itself nourished like a parasite by the rest of the organism this also agrees with what is shown in our third book that knowing is so much the purer and more perfect the more it has freed and severed itself from the will whereby the purely objective the aesthetic comprehension appears just as an extract is so much the purer the more it has been separated from that out of which it is extracted and been cleared of all sediment the opposite is shown by the will whose most immediate manifestation is the whole organic life and primarily the untiring heart this last consideration is related to the theme of the following chapter to which it therefore makes the transition yet the following observation belongs to it in magnetic somnambulism the consciousness is doubled two trains of knowledge each connected in itself but quite different from each other arise the waking consciousness knows nothing of the somnambulant but the will retains in both the same character and remains throughout identical it expresses in both the same inclinations and aversions for the function may be doubled but not the true nature End of chapter 19, recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine.